0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. With the Emergencies Act Inquiry safely behind us, what did we learn about Canada and its relationship with the provinces? Michael Kempke, criminology professor at the University of Ottawa, shares his opinion. The federal government, Ontario, and four Atlantic provinces have reached a health care deal in principle yesterday, now, what does that mean, and where do we go from here? Dr. James Thiessen, Director of Health Administration and Community Care at Toronto Metropolitan University will talk to us about that. And mining on the moon, yeah, really. Is it the new gold rush? We'll talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900
1: CHML.
0: The fallout and the analysis uh, continues, of course, after the Emergencies Act uh, inquiry released their report, uh, Justice Paul Rouleau, uh, with his findings uh, just a couple of days ago. And uh, uh, there was immediate reaction, of course, because, the let's face it, the, the number one question that seemed to be uh, on everybody's minds is, was the government justified in doing that? And, and, um, and Justice Rouleau may, uh, did rule on that. Uh, but there's a lot more to his report, too, that uh, that we don't want to see uh, just passed over and shoved into a bottom drawer because I, I think the report should actually uh, act as a catalyst for further discussion. Uh, and uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Professor Michael uh, – I'm sorry, I'm not going to this over here uh, – Michael Kempe is uh, an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. My apologies, Michael. Just my screen went blank as I was talking to you. Uh, so, uh, But I think we got everything back now, so we're good to go. Uh, I, I was fascinated by the piece that uh, that was in the National Post that uh, you, you basically suggested that uh, that not just we, but the the politicians themselves should probably be studying what Justice Rouleau talks about here because there's a, a lot more to this. Is just were they right or were they wrong in doing this, wasn't there? that's absolutely the issue
1: in Rouleau's recommendations. He's saying, look, if we focus in on what went wrong here, obviously human politicians behave the way politicians do, and they made very many errors in playing basic political games and trying to pin the convoy and its origins and its consequences on one another. The results were catastrophic. What we need are proper frameworks in place that basically imposes – Effective federalism on imperfect politicians, and he does so. Rulo does so through the window of his suggestions for what we should do about policing and intelligence.
0: Uh, and, and let's let's dig down a little deeper into that right now, because he talks about, uh, as you mentioned, let's face it, you know politicians played politics with this, which uh, I guess we, was not totally unexpected, but at the same time, it was it was counterproductive. To, and I think Justice Rulo was quite poignant in that, uh, said the comments the prime minister made and the actions or actual lack of action by the Ontario premier probably contributed to the circumstance uh, getting as, as critical as it did. Well, that is what he concluded. And this is on the basis of the
1: evidence that was given over those weeks of testimony where The mayor of Ottawa at the time, Jim Watson, and the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, were very clear that uh, Doug Ford had dismissed the idea of meetings between the three of them as not being a productive use of time. And these two, the prime minister and the mayor at the time, felt that this was just a political game to try to pin the entire convoy on the federal government for very unpopular vaccine mandates. Now, what Rouleau gets to in his report is that the delays that were caused by this lack of engagement in the province basically living up to what is their responsibility to be the backstops of municipal action. In other words, if things are going poorly in cities, cities are the creation of the provinces, and the province is the first line of defense uh, for a city. So if you have a delay, this is going to allow things to bed in on the ground and the problem to spiral out of control. So what did Rouleau say? He didn't say if the province had done everything well, we would have had absolutely no problem. There would have been a lovely little peaceful protest in Ottawa and maybe a little march in in Windsor at the Ambassador Bridge. No, he said those delays were fateful. They allowed a situation that was large and growing to spiral out of control. We probably could have kept the lid on the situation. Yes, we would have had disruptive protest. Yes, people would have been inconvenienced, but it would not have got to the level where people, citizens were unable to go about any of their daily business or exercise their own rights in what became a complete absence of order. In other words, our delays and our political games allowed the situation to spiral out of control, which meant that the Emergencies Act then became necessary. What we're getting at is we probably could have dealt with it without the Emergencies Act if we had acted quickly. The fact that we didn't
0: is what led to the Emergencies Act becoming necessary. And, and we heard some of that, uh, you know, discourse, even as this was occurring, of course, uh, uh, you know, Premier Ford seemed to get away from this. And there was all sorts of a- analysis. I think you and I have talked about this in the past, Michael, that it, it seems that, that Ford's advisors basically said, stay out of this. Uh, this is, you know, a very incendiary situation here. You know, let Paulie Evan Trudeau be the bad guys and and you just stay in the background. And, 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 and much to the chagrin of the people of Ottawa and Windsor, of course. Uh, but uh, I think Justice Rollo makes an in- interesting point. Had they sat down, I don't think anybody's suggesting, okay, after uh, two or three sessions, we'll have a magic, magic solution. Uh, but coordinated efforts. <laughs> uh, what they didn't do was almost a microcosm uh, of, of the policing itself in Ottawa, wasn't it, Michael? Where nobody was talking to anybody and there was no coordinated effort, which is why it dragged on as long as it did.
1: And that, that really is the issue. And you see, policing and community order, public order, obviously, this is the main purpose of having a modern state. So if the state cannot even organize properly coordinated community safety, public order, policing, and so forth, this is an extremely bad and damaging image for the modern state. So For example, as you say, the police were not well-coordinated on the ground in Ottawa. Everybody was confused between the civilian oversight body, the city trying to coordinate between Ottawa police and Ontario provincial police. When things start to spin out of control like that, the essential thing for the state to do, in this case at the provincial level of government, is mobilize their quarterback agency. In this case, it would be the Inspectorate General of Policing. That body is supposed to come in and straighten things out. That is an essential function for a province in a federation such as what we have in Canada. The point being that if they don't do that and policing and public order collapses and citizens are not able to live out their uh, daily essentials and their basic rights with some semblance of order around them, you might as well hand a hammer to the opponents of the modern state and say, hit us over the head with it. Because it shows people, it gives people the ammunition that the modern state is some kind of a failure and people start listening to their radical ideas to go back to some sort of very local feudal system of government where we govern by emotions and morals and not by evidence.
0: There's uh, an interesting twist on this, too, in the report uh, that I know you've touched on uh, in the last couple of days, too, Michael, uh, about provincial uh, responsibility here, too. I mean, it's it's in Ottawa. It's the nation's capital. And I think a lot of people, as we were watching this unfold last year, were th- simply thinking, well, you know, the feds have got to do something about it. Uh, there's a provincial responsibility here, too, in Alberta, as there was in Ontario. Uh, for for them to be ready for circumstances like this and emergency situations, and and they didn't seem to be ready. They didn't even seem to have a plan. And I, I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Well, and
1: that's and Rulo gets into that where he says, you know, all policing is meant to be intelligence driven. However, we are human beings and we tend to fall back on our experience. So the Ottawa Police has had hundreds and hundreds of protests. Unfortunately, they got warnings from the OPP, the Hendon reports that said, this looks like it could be something that spirals out of control, but we're not sure. And they filtered that through their experience of saying, oh no, we've seen convoys before. They stay for a day or two and they're on their way. They often say they're going to stay longer and they don't. And unfortunately, their experience tripped them up on that. So you're absolutely right. The game has changed. Uh, We need to get ready with these plans. It seems to me that police organizations and cities and their civilian oversight bodies have woken up to the idea that this new era of mass protest is upon us. We've dealt with a few smaller ones much more effectively, including in Hamilton, and uh, we sort of go from there. But the essential point of RULO is implement and empower these provincial quarterback bodies that I'm talking about, like the Inspector General of Policing. Because when things inevitably, when the rubber hits the road and things start to go sideways, as they will again in the future with protests and other policing issues, somebody's got to step in quickly, not worry about offending anybody or stepping on anybody's jurisdictional toes and so forth, and straighten things out. And that's really the job for the province in a federation like Canada.
0: The point I want to, that I think Justice Rollo touched on is, is for those who may disagree with his assessment that the government uh, met that threshold uh, about... And again, as as we talked about, it's it's the threshold that was set up by CSIS some years ago. That was the advice that they used, and they used their quote-unquote definition of, of a threat to national security uh what I read into this is that Justice Rulo was essentially saying, uh, not so easy to define. Uh, you can't just take the CSIS definition and say, bingo, that's it. That is what a threat to security is. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very movable uh, definition. And, and I th- he, I think, was suggesting that not only do we have to have a, a, a discussion about what that means, but we have to be open-minded about, you know, variations on that theme. There's, there's no black and white here, he seemed to be suggesting.
1: Well, that that really is what he got into. Now, I personally think that he got the analysis right. There are many people who don't agree, and this will get hammered out in the federal court in the first week of April with, you know, a binding uh, decision on the part of judges. But what he's getting at is he's saying, look, CSIS is an intelligence agency. They're not very accountable to anybody other than their oversight body. They don't answer to the people. The elected government does answer to parliament and to the ballot box and undertakes a lot wider range of things than does CSIS. So you take the same standards, these famous section two standards of the CSIS Act, and those same words can be applied in different ways for a spy agency as they do with the elected federal government. And he says, and given that this has caused so much confusion and really a lot of heat rather than light in public debate, let's actually put a better definition for emergency in the Emergencies Act as it applies to the federal government because this has led us a little bit down the garden path here. We're arguing about something that's not very productive.
0: But and how do you attain that, though? Uh, And I'm not suggesting to to the satisfaction of everybody, because I don't think you can ever do that. Uh, But, you know, when, for instance, when they wrote the Emergencies Act and when CISA definition was being used as as the foundation for that, uh, we did. Were we talking about cybersecurity? Were we talking about disinformation campaigns? Were we those those things were not, I think, front of mind for anybody. And they were certainly a factor in some of the occurrences that happened in, in Ottawa and even heading to Ottawa.
1: No, we were talking about the mid-80s when they drafted the Emergencies
0: Act. So
1: cold war, state threats to Canada, uh, organized militia activity, nothing to do with mass protests that can be mobilized over social media and funded on online uh, funding sources like GoFundMe and Give, Send, Go and so forth. So this was designed for a world that did not yet exist. Uh, most obviously, we have to update the Emergencies Act to that new reality. And Rouleau is smart. He's creating some reasonable expectations in that he's saying, although we can improve our definition of emergency, we will never have an airtight legal definition of the issue because emergency well literally refers to the unforeseen. So you can never define for everything in the unforeseen. So there will always be a political decision there, call that the government will have to make, And then it's up to us to say, was the government's decision a reasonable, an objectively reasonable political decision?
0: So how does this discussion begin? Because he started off just saying, uh, you know, the politics or the playing politics, the the political theater, I guess, as he explained it, uh, Permeated this whole process right from the beginning, and, and probably exacerbated the situation. Uh, are we are we concerned or fearful that uh, that a discussion about the definition itself and and, and revamping the Emergencies Act uh, is going to have the same sort of influences?
1: Well, it it there's a real danger there. I mean, the the opportunity to play politics with redrafting the Emergencies Act may be too tempting uh, for all sides of the divide at the federal level. Not to engage. I think the script writes itself. I mean, if the liberals try to reform the definition of emergency, the conservatives can easily say, there you go, they're redrafting it to suit their own purposes of wanting to mobilize these extraordinary powers all the time and the liberals will then respond well here's another example of attacking the institutions of democracy making people lose faith in what the government is doing we really i hope that canadians are becoming a little bit more sophisticated in reading these messages because if they don't land politicians will
0: stop circulating them and 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 that's maybe a lesson for us to learn here too. I mean, it's it's one thing to point a finger at politicians and say you made a bad situation worse, uh, but we have a role to play here too because we were the audience. I mean, we we could have rejected uh, or dismissed, uh, you know, the, the 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 political rants that were going on here and the and the rhetoric. Uh, a lot of us didn't, uh, it, but we, I guess that's also kind of a, a characteristic of the time, isn't it? Where we we tend to gravitate to, to comments and and posts or whatever that substantiate our, our our points of view, as opposed to trying to learn uh, from from these things. It, it's it's a it's a different mindset that we have right now, too, and that's that's going to be a big hurdle, I think, to overcome. And there's the real value of the emergencies
1: inquiry, the Poet Commission. All of those hours of forcing political leaders and police and intelligence professionals to present their case in the public eye did lead to a better public understanding of the situation. So this is why I'm a big fan of basically building space in for public debate into political process wherever you can. Because whether you agree with people's perspectives or not, I would rather have them take place inside the institutions of democracy and just say, well, we don't like what you're saying, so we're going to push it out which really only leaves people with protest and frustration in spiral out of control.
0: Exactly, uh, a great piece that uh, that we read in the National Post that uh, that covers this very extensively. Michael, thank you so much for the time today. Always a pleasure. Okay, thank you, Bill. Take care, that's a professional Michael Kempke uh, from uh, the University of Ottawa, who's of course right there. We talked to Michael oftentimes uh, during uh, the occupation and uh, the events leading up to it. And so of course the subsequent inquiry, always great to get that perspective.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We got a deal, sort of. Uh, the uh, federal government announcing yesterday that Ontario and a number of the uh, Atlantic provinces have signed the deals in principle uh, for that deal to the... With the health care deal, of course, that uh, the prime minister and the healthcare minister and others, uh, as they met with the premiers uh, not that long ago, just a week and a half or so ago, uh, and uh, Premier Ford had said that they seemed to be close to a deal, and it looks like we we're well on that road to do that. So what does it actually mean? What are the implications for this? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. James Teeson. Uh, Dr. Teeson is the director of health administration and community care and associate professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, great to have you with us today. Great to be on. Good morning, Bill. Let's let's talk a little bit about the implications first of all, I got to ask you, are you surprised that that we were able to come to an agreement in principle so quickly after that meeting?
2: I think it had to happen quickly. Um, Budget season is rolling around. Um, The federal government wanted the deal to happen quickly. Um, the prevent provinces um, saw some money on the table not as much as they wanted of course but they had to take what they could get right now and it was pretty clear the federal government wasn't going to budge on the um, value of the funds that they were going to um, transfer
0: I, I know we're going to talk about the health benefits to this but i I, I do uh, feel as if we have to acknowledge the fact that you know the 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 politicians involved here seem to be a little more pragmatic than they have in the past. I was fearful, and I know a lot of my colleagues were, that uh, when we knew of, of the, the gap that was between what the provinces wanted and what the federal government was going to put on the table, uh, that they would just say, forget it, no deal, walk away. Because that's happened in the past. Uh, there seemed to be a willingness to try to find this a way to make this work this time.
2: Yeah, that's a very um, astute observation. The gap, you're right, between their demands and what um, was finally delivered is, is very large. And I agree, they, they were pragmatic. Um, I don't think they wanted to really get in a, um, a big fight over this right now. And I have to wonder whether this uh, reflects an understanding that fixing our healthcare prob- issues is not just about more money. There's got to be more, more to it than that.
0: I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, the, we're throwing a lot of big numbers around. Everybody is, you know, the premiers, the health ministers, uh, the prime minister, and and the everyday Canadian and the ones that we've talked to on this program. And I'm sure uh, the people that you deal with on a daily basis, doctor, they're basically saying, look, just just give us a better system, okay? Just make sure that I have access to the, to the care that I need when I need it, and that I can have that operation when I need it, et cetera. You guys work out the details. And and I think we're looking at the bottom line already and say, just, just make it better for us. I, I agree, and that's a
2: huge ask. Um, we have structural uh, inertia, I guess, and. I think a good start, though, would be to focus on the issues that the federal government has highlighted. And notably, they highlighted in their previous deal and their previous the deal before that. <laughs> and that is um, stronger community care, um, team-based uh, primary care, so more people get access to doctors and so on. Um, people understand that's the way to go. I, and the policymakers understand that's what we have to do. And we just have to um, move towards... Um, a system that makes more sense than what we have now.
0: How do you, I'm going to say, how do you do that? And I I, I, (laughs) go in the next 60 seconds, doctor, can you solve this thing for us? I I think, you know, we have to be realistic about this. But as you say, these promises have been made in the past and they're they're lofty goals and and very necessary, I think, for us to achieve. Uh, But, uh, you know, question one is, okay, how do you do that? And question two, as with any other project, and I know you work at the university, I guess you guys deal with something like this all the time. How do you measure outcomes? How do you tell if we're going down the right road? How can you tell if we're being successful in what we do? That, that's a lot of heavy lifting yet to come on this.
2: Yes. Um, I, I guess one measure would be, and the one that they keep asking for is uh, the making sure that everyone's got a primary care physician or they're actually... Um, have access to a, a family health team. As you know, about 15% of Ontario people don't have a doctor. And actually it's interesting, the other number, the other 15% number is um, alternative level of care, that is patients that are in hospitals that um, could be out in the community. So I think there's sort of two big steps, and I think they will move towards this. One is to encourage people, um, More doctors to work in groups, which makes a more rational um, system um, for the doctors and for the patients. And you've got to work on the demand for care, particularly in hospitals, which are really expensive, as you know. About a third of spending is in hospitals. So if you can um, reduce that demand and those patients that shouldn't be there or don't have to be there, it's a better term, I'm sorry, um, they should be just putting that money where you're going to have the biggest marginal effect. And I'm going to go on my podium here and say that it's got to be community care. They only spend about $5 billion of their $68 billion dollars, that the the, the province spends goes to home care and if you have better home care you're going to keep people out of the hospital and that's one way to start to fix this and the the measures you're talking about um, they're pretty well known emergency room visits which you know is an indicator of lack of access to primary care that would be one of the big ones
0: a couple of elements to that and I, I totally agree we did a segment earlier this week about home care and it's it you're right it's something that seems to fall through the cracks an awful lot of the time uh, because it's uh it's it's not front and center unless you're one of the people that actually needs it or you have a loved one who really needs it and you understand that uh, the, the, there's a huge uh, vacuum there that could be filled uh, and and you know i think we talked about this uh Back during some of the investigations about long-term care facilities uh, and even about, you know, the overcrowding in hospitals, Uh, as you mentioned, most people don't want to be there. They'd rather be at home recovering or or whatever. But if the home care is not there, they really don't have too many options on the table. Uh, And that's something that that I think every government should be working towards addressing uh, because it's automatically going to take some of the pressure off primary care, isn't it? Absolutely.
2: And we got to remember a big part of home care, it's not just seniors. There are also people that are in other types of facilities or long-term care facilities that are not seniors that just have conditions that require lots of care. They can be at home. And the other thing, um, condition that is mentioned in this um, new deal is mental health. Most of it is delivered in the community. And as we know, a lot of our other social issues, um, addictions, and so on are associated with mental health. So um, just more money for community care, including mental health, is going to go a long way in starting to address the um, strains that we're
0: seeing on our system. Doctor, from a strategic standpoint, what what do you anticipate seeing here? Is there going to be an Ontario game plan announced. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Here are the objectives, and and here are the priorities. Right now, we're going to attack this one, then this one, this one, or are these just going to be, kind of be rolled out in an ad hoc basis? All towards a, you know, a, a hopefully, a happy ending. Uh, but you know, you like to know that there's going to be a game plan that they 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 know where they're going to address first and and what the priorities are going to be. Uh, do we need to have that discussion, or do you think that's that that information is already there?
2: Great question. The information's there. Um, if you, you, you obviously, you're, you're a participant in this. You p- follow the policy debates. The answers are fairly clear, um, as, as, as we've just suggested. And, but I think that there should be a clear strategy. I agree. We have to move in that direction. The challenge will be, it's, it always comes down to money, Bill, as you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. when the nurses are negotiating for more money um, and, and the other um, participants, um, the, the system's been kind of beat down the last few years. It looks like things are settling down a little bit um, and we, as we come out of this pandemic. But um, given the you know uncertainty around the economy and um, government revenues going forward, are we going to have a recession or not? I, I think that the intent will be to try to have a measured yet strategic approach to fixing the system. But um, like the cliche, uh, what, was it Mike Tyson? Was it supposedly said? You, you, everyone has a plan, then you get hit in the face.
0: uh well stated Uh, and and maybe given some of the stuff we've gone through in the last couple of years it's probably a very apt descriptor of what's what's happened here things that just kind of come out of the blue at you and you don't anticipate them uh and and i guess that's one of the other aspects of of that kind of strategy isn't it doctor to be able to anticipate if not anticipate what's going to happen but that something will happen and be ready to pivot toward uh an alternative like this and it just seems as if you know the fact that the premier's and have come to an agreement in principle, like you say, there's still a lot of work to be done on this. I, I think really underscores the, the severity of the situation that we're in right now. Uh, it's always been problematic and there's always been shortcomings. And I know we've talked about that, uh, but I got the sense from even what premier Ford was saying. And some of the other premiers were saying is they're kind of looking at this, like, this is our last chance to get this right. I agree. And to your earlier point,
2: I was a bit surprised given their, you know, sort of tough positioning that they were, um, you know, presenting after the first, um, in the, in the first step of the deal, um, it was in February 7th. They, you know, what did the premier say? This was a down payment. Um, but then by the mm-hmm. time they got back to their offices in their provinces, they kind of looked at it and they said, yeah, we got to go ahead. Um, I And I, and I, to my earlier point, I think there's an understanding that, it's not just about more money. They'll take the more money and they'll they'll run with it and, and it will patch some things. But there has to be fundamental change. There's understanding that it has to be made. Uh, and I just hope that they can move forward with it.
0: Well, and, and I, I think you've touched on something that's very important here. We've talked about this for the longest time. Yes, we need more foreign trained uh, physicians and nurses here, and they need to be accredited as quickly as possible. And I think they've acknowledged that, and they're doing that. Yep. Uh, yes, we need more home care. There's a number of issues uh, because we have to look at all facets of this in situations like this. But I think we, as a public, I guess are going to have to learn to be more flexible about, about what our expectations are of the system too, aren't we, Doctor? I mean, you mentioned, uh, I, I think a key distinction here, Uh, You know, years ago when we were talking about this, it said, okay, everybody has the right to have a family physician. Well, now that's, no, you have the right to have access to a family physician. Now, there aren't a whole lot of family physicians right now. Uh, and and as you say, the the collaborations, the clinics that uh, that are popping up right now, uh, seem to be part of the solution, uh, and and I'm, and going to have to be part of the future. And I know some people feel uncomfortable with that, but it's access to a doctor, in this case, a team of doctors, uh, as opposed to what we might have been used to in, in, in past generations. And I think that we we have to learn to pivot, just like the politicians do. Absolutely,
2: and you know it. These um, family health teams and there's different you know configurations of them. It's a great idea, and it's important to remember that while it's you, we have to get used to this notion that we won't know uh, who we'll, who we'll be seeing you know perhaps um, when we have a consult. However, um, these groups are. To provide after-hours care, which your regular GP didn't, you know that in the in the larger groups there might be a pharmacist overseeing the um, meds that uh, people with complex care needs have. Um, so there's a lot of good things about these. Um, arrangements that we have to get used to. And what's most important, though, is that it's a better situation for doctors. Um, They can plan holidays, they can uh, have their work time, They'll, they'll still be busy and doing good work, but they can have a little bit more control over their lives, which will keep them in the profession and keep them active.
0: Yeah, because I know that uh, re- retiring doctors is, is a major problem here, too, and there's not a whole lot coming through at the other end of the cycle. Uh, and as yep. you mentioned, the pharma system, I mean, you know, that this government has actually been, I think, pretty uh, pragmatic and, and forward thinking when they've given a lot more leeway for pharmacists now to renew prescriptions, etc. And so you don't need to make an appointment necessarily with your doctor to get a prescription renewed. Uh, that's That can be an inconvenience for the patients, certainly for uh, increasing the, the workload for the family doctor, too. So I, they're, they're looking looking at ideas here, and I, I think that's a good first step. We're nowhere near the finish line here, uh, but I think we're pointed in the right direction, aren't we?
2: Yes, and the you know, initiatives like increasing the scope of practice for uh, allied health professionals like pharmacists is a great idea, as you suggest, um, because it's it's all about yeah reducing the load, and, and what can I say? The uh, I guess it it just makes the system more efficient, and um, and people know that they can go to a pharmacist and get this help. And it it's a recognition to your earlier point about a big strategy. It also reminds us that while there should be a strategy, um, there's not just one simple answer. It's going to be a bunch of things, and certainly increasing the scope of practice for pharmacists is one piece of getting us to a better system.
0: Well, and I think the template. I know we're just running out of time here, but uh, was was the child care deal uh, that they they struck? And it took a little while. And, tried, and on that point, of course, Ontario was the last one to sign on. Then we seemed to be the first one to hop onto this one. But in other words, I think it it, it that was an eye opener for the the federal government to say we can't have a one size fits all. Uh, we need to have deals with the different territories and provinces, and that's going to increase the comfort level and I think a more efficient system. So uh, I, I think we are moving in the right direction, Doctor. It's always a pleasure to have you on here, and always pleasure to get your perspective. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Phil. It's always enjoyable. Take care. Dr. James Teason from Toronto Metropolitan University. He's an associate prof there, and also the director of health administration and community care. Uh, And we have been critical. And I got to tell you, uh, in talking to some of my colleagues in this business, we will continue to be critical. That doesn't mean negative. That means to to analyze and and to inform about what's going on through the system. We're not at the end of the, the game here by any stretch of the imagination.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We're uh, going back to the moon. You've seen a number of uh, expeditions, uh, lunar expeditions over the last little while. uh, And that's only going to continue. Now it's opened up a whole bunch of, yes, economic possibilities. You know, back in the gold rush uh, in uh, the late 1800s in, in, in California, it was you know, there's gold in them there hills. Well, there's not gold in the hills over in the, on the lunar surface, but there's a lot of other minerals uh, that could be extracted. And Canada could play a leading role, according to a, a piece that was written, uh, published in the Golden Mail the other day. Uh, one of the authors of that uh, joins us right now. Heather Exner-Pirot is a senior policy analyst at the McDonald laurier Institute. Uh, Heather, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today.
3: Thanks for having me
0: you this is a, an interesting story. I was fascinated by this uh, that a it's possible and b uh, if we don't hurry up, we could miss the boat on this. I may explain to our listeners what you were writing about
3: sure exactly and and I'll just start with you know that I approached this with skepticism initially too. you know it's mm-hmm. it's hard to make money off of mining you know in Canada, let alone on the moon <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's not exactly that. it's certainly the the first thing, the thing that we'll see in the next decade or two. Um, is space mining on the moon to support moon operations. So as you mentioned, we are going back to the moon. Um, there's the Artemis mission being led by NASA. Canadian Space Agency is part of it that seeks to establish a long-term presence on the moon. And that will require that at that moon base, that we do have oxygen, uh, where we do have hydrogen, we do have fuel, things to support that permanent presence. And so initially, moon mining is going to be supporting that moon presence. And so it's very necessary. And then to your other point, though, that, yes, you know, Russia is, is uh you know, starting its first moon mission, not manned. Unmanned moon mission to the moon this summer for the first time in decades, uh, China has started moon missions. We all do have a long term view that there may be some elements and I can talk about that later that will be valuable economically back here on Earth. But for now, it's really about supporting moon operations themselves.
0: Uh, and. And as you say, there's a way in which we can do that and extract them. Uh, but as to as the timing of this, and uh, you, there's an interesting stat you, you raised here. If you want to move on this, uh, it takes a long time. You just don't say, OK, we're going to build a mine here, uh, you know, get shovels out. Uh, there's a lot of, of process that goes in here, maybe even a lot of red tape. Uh, but you're suggesting that to move on this process as, as quickly as we probably need to, uh, we're going to have to have a much more efficient, much faster process.
3: Yeah, exactly. So the plan is to have that permanent, uh, you know, lunar presence by the early 2030s. And in some ways, that seems like a very long time. But in other ways, if you're in the mining business, 10 years is not a long time at all. And there are obviously going to be incredible technical and logistical challenges, uh, you know, setting up a mining operation, converting that into oxygen and hydrogen. And so there are companies, you know, uh, working very hard to try to figure out what could that look like? How would you get the equipment there? How would you operate it? What could they produce? Uh, and that's where that innovation and that support is going to be needed. All
0: right. I guess the other element to this uh, is, uh, as you say, the Chinese are interested in lunar exploration. The Rus- Russians certainly are. Uh, we, the Canada-U.S. relationship and other nations are going to be involved in that too. Uh, has there been any discussion about who owns what or who can lay claim to what here? We we can't even seem to settle on who owns the Arctic right now. If We are starting to go to the lunar surface. Are we only expanding an existing problem about uh, about ownership?
3: I mean, there is fear of that and there isn't any way yet. Um, We do have international space treaties to kind of govern, you know, uh, near space, uh, but nothing on the moon. So it does feel very much like it'll be a first come, first serve. And that's why we're saying it's a bit of a space race. And I'm not one for, you know, alarmism. Uh, The moon is a big place. Uh, but to get to your point of the element, you know, what we actually might mine from the moon, uh, you know, in the medium term is is uh, a helium, uh, an isotope of helium, helium-3, because it could be very useful in nuclear fission. Uh, and so if there are particular areas of the moon that are particularly rich in this uh, helium isotope, then we might want to get there first.
0: Uh, and to your point in the article here, like why Canada? Uh, because we're used to to, to mining in, in, well, you know, difficult circumstances. Uh, Northern Ontario, places like that, where we've, we've had to pivot a little bit and we maybe do it differently and efficiently. Uh, so we've got some expertise that we could offer to this
3: process, don't we? Well, exactly. And if, you know, if we support, you know, NASA's leading this and the United States is leading yeah. this, and that's fair. But do we want Canada to play a part? Do we want Canada to be able to support? And if, if you're looking at, you know, what would you want Canada to do? What is that area that, that we can fill? Then I think that space mining operation is a very strong one. And as you mentioned, not only do we have very good experience in mining and in mining in remote locations, but we actually have pretty good experience in space exploration too. And everyone knows about the Canadarm, but that's operating robotics in space. uh, And that's kind of what this mining is going to take. So we have the talent in Canada uh, to be leaders in this. And now, as I say, you know, at the end, it's a matter matter of being ambitious about it and not just kind of reacting knee-jerk and saying, this is crazy. Um, It's a matter of us, you know, saying, yeah, this is the niche that we can fill and we can support this.
0: Uh, and I, I'm just fascinated, as I say, as I read this more, I thought, yeah, we could do it. Yeah, we could do that. And this is stuff that 30 years ago people said, yeah, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. Uh, but there is a possibility here that we can make, for instance, lunar communities self-sufficient because of the minerals that exist there. And, and basically, as you mentioned in the piece, we could be using a moon as a, as a, a jump-off point for future exploration to to other parts of the solar system.
3: Yeah, and that's the other part of it where, you know, a new Canada arm is coming into play. So they're going to have the first, uh, the gateway program, which will put a space station in lunar orbit uh, for the first time. And part of the thinking is not only to support the moon base and lunar operations, but also deep space. So as um, more stations, uh, you know, more satellites, et cetera, go into Mars or into deep space, It'll be very helpful for them once they, you know, exit Earth's atmosphere to get a little support and maybe have a fuel up. As I said, it could act as a gas, as a gas station. And so where are you going to get the gas? Uh, you know, you can get hydrogen from the moon, put it in that gateway, uh, lunar, uh, satellite and then set them on their way to deep space. So, you know, again, this sounds like science fiction, but it's very much happening. It is a mission that is happening. They've had their first successful milestones. Uh, the China and Russia have already planned that they're going to jointly have uh, a permanent lunar presence together. And so this is happening and it's a matter of, do we think Canada can play a role? Do we think Canada can help? Or are we just going to stand on the sidelines?
0: Fascinating uh, topic. And and uh, maybe the, you know, the real takeaway here is, this is not saying, wouldn't it be nice if, it's a, hey hey, uh, we can do this. How do we get this done now? So we're, we've already advanced. Uh, we're not quite uh, at second base, rounding running the third right now, but uh, we're, we're going in the right direction here. A, a great yeah. piece. Heather, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Heather Exner of is a senior policy analyst at uh, McDonald-Laurier Institute. I think it's still on the Globe and Mail webpage if you want to read the uh, the article in full. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from
2: 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.